Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Air Canada third quarter 2020 conference call. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Kathleen Murphy. Please go ahead, Ms. Murphy. Thank you, Mo, and good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on our third quarter call. With me this morning are Praline Robinescu, our President and Chief Executive Officer, Mark Russo, our Deputy Chief Executive Officer and Chief Financial Officer, our Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer. On today's call, Kaylin will begin by giving you an overview of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and related travel restrictions on Arcata, what we have been doing in response and how we view the future. Lucy will touch on travel demand, cargo, and loyalty, and Mike will provide you with visibility on current plans regarding cash burn rate, liquidity, and fleet before turning it back to Kaylin. We'll then open it up to questions from equity analysts, followed by questions from fixed income analysts. Before we get started, please note that student statements made on this call are forward-looking within the meaning of applicable securities laws. This call also includes references to non-GAAP measure. Please refer to our third quarter press release and MDNA for cautionary statements relating to forward-looking information and for reconciliations of non-GAAP measures to GAAP results. I will now turn it over to Kaylin. Thank you, Kathy. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on our third quarter earnings call. We recorded third quarter negative EBITDA of $554 million and an operating loss of $785 million. Operating revenue declined 86% over the third quarter of 2019, somewhat mitigated by our strong cargo revenue performance, highlighted by our cargo group's ability to pivot to dedicated all cargo flights during the pandemic. Since mid-March, we have operated over 3,000 all cargo international flights And building on our 52% year-over-year cargo revenue increase for the second quarter, our cargo revenues increased 22% in the third quarter, supporting our objective to build a bigger cargo business. Today's results reflect COVID-19's unprecedented impact on our industry globally and on Air Canada in particular in what has historically been our most productive and profitable quarter. While our revenues improved over Q2, and our domestic operations started showing some signs of recovery. Nonetheless, revenue passenger miles declined 91% compared to a year ago, underscoring the stifling effect that travel restrictions have had on aviation in Canada, especially when compared to many markets around the world. The three largest carriers in the United States, for example, experienced a traffic decline of almost 80% on average over Q3 2019. Comparatively, our traffic decline based on RPMs translates into an additional $550 to $600 million of lost revenue in Q3, attributable directly to the Canadian travel restrictions, including the blanket ban on foreign nationals, mandatory 14-day quarantine for all arriving passengers, and the Atlantic Canada travel bubble. We continue to operate within these constraints, and from the outset we have been steadfast in our approach, acting decisively to implement our COVID-19 mitigation and recovery plan. Since March, we have raised almost $6 billion in additional liquidity, leveraging what was one of the industry's strongest balance sheets as we entered the pandemic. 
We took the painful step of eliminating 20,000 jobs after having created 10,000 over the previous five years. We reduced our third quarter capacity by more than 80%, a devastating figure when, when considering that entering 2020, we had enjoyed 10 straight years of significant and profitable network expansion. We announced a series of indefinite route suspensions and station closures at the end of June, and our network planning team has identified up to a further 95 domestic, U.S. transborder and international route suspensions, and nine station, Canadian station closures required to preserve liquidity, cut costs, and reduce capital expenditures as we prepare for a smaller footprint, which is expected to last several years. Given the public statements made by the Honorable Mark Garneau, Canada's Minister of Transport, yesterday regarding commencing immediate discussions with major airlines on aviation <coughs> industry sector-specific support, we are deferring the additional route suspensions and station closures pending the progress of those discussions. We've also made many necessary fleet decisions, carefully rationalizing our existing fleet by accelerating the retirement of 79 mainline and Rouge aircraft. We are deferring new Boeing 737-8 and Airbus A220 deliveries scheduled for 2021 and 2022 and entirely cancelling 10 Boeing 737-8 and 12 Airbus A220 aircraft, representing about 40% of the remaining scheduled deliveries. Through this fleet restructuring and other capital reduction initiatives, we have lowered total projected capital expenditures by about $3 billion over the 2020 to 2023 period compared to our total projected capital expenditures at the end of 2019, an important part of our mitigation plan and de-risking those obligations. Underpinning our mitigation and recovery plan has been our resolute focus on health and safety, both for our customers and our people. We have been a leader in introducing progressive layers of protection, such as our comprehensive suite of biosafety measures, Air Canada Clean Care Plus, and we continue to explore new technologies and processes to further build confidence in customers and regulators. Amongst the various science-based measures we have advocated, testing at airports is by far the most significant, as demonstrated by our partnership with McMaster Health Labs for testing international travelers arriving at Toronto Pearson Airport. It was the largest ever study of its kind and the first in Canada, and preliminary results clearly indicate testing as a viable, responsible, and effective alternative to quarantine, which would protect Canadians and facilitate the safe relaxation of quarantine. Indeed, of more than 38,000 test samples collected during the study, more than 99% tested negative, or put another way, less than 1% tested positive. This study was instrumental in providing the federal government and the government of Alberta the confidence to move forward with a testing initiative in Calgary aimed at easing quarantine requirements. I need to hear to specifically call out and thank Alberta Premier Jason Kenney for his leadership and support of the airline industry. The, pre the uh, Premier of Ontario has also announced that if the trial in Alberta goes well, a similar program could be implemented in Toronto. These developments are encouraging steps towards the safe resumption of air travel to, from, and within Canada. In addition to the mitigation steps we have taken, we are executing several foundational initiatives to support our post-COVID recovery and long-term success. We fully anticipate our new Aeroplan program will be one of the best travel loyalty programs available. 
Our streamlined aircraft fleet will be highly fuel efficient and well configured for our key routes. Our fully implemented new passenger service system will provide benefit to our customers and significant revenue opportunities for us. Cargo will become an increasingly important part of our business as we plan to expand to dedicated freighters and focus on e-commerce, which Lucy will expand upon. Our proposed acquisition of Transat, if approved, will enable us to better compete globally in a drastically altered global airline market. And most importantly, our culture remains strong. We have employees who remain highly motivated and intensely focused on making our customers safe and feel safe when traveling, and I thank them for their commitment and hard work. Our airline continues to demonstrate how nimble and innovative we can be in the face of unprecedented challenges, and our response is being recognized. Air Canada was recently ranked as one of Canada's most valuable brands by the brand equity firm Brands. We were the only airline included in their list of top 40 brands in Canada, and we received top rankings in six categories, including first for best brand experience. The teamwork and collaboration reflected in these rankings will continue to be imperative as we build our recovery momentum. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Lucy. Thank you, Kaylin, and good morning, everyone. I'd like to start by thanking our teams for their perseverance and dedication in delivering a safe customer experience as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID-19. Passenger demand in the third quarter continued to be drastically impacted by the pandemic and travel restrictions imposed globally and here in Canada, resulting in a passenger revenue decrease of 90%. We operated just over 18% of our capacity compared to the same quarter in 2019, with 110 of our mainline and Rouge aircraft and 36 of our Air Canada Express aircraft grounded in the quarter. As Caitlin mentioned, the severe travel restrictions imposed in Canada have had a direct negative impact on the recovery of air travel relative to other countries, including the United States, where the recovery started earlier and has been stronger than in Canada. Several U.S. carriers, for example, have started to enjoy a quicker bounce back in the Pacific and Sun markets than we have due to less severe travel deterrence. As well, over the Pacific, we are restricted by Chinese authorities to two weekly flights, while the U.S. government has been able to establish flight parity for Chinese and American carriers. Our domestic recovery has also been comparatively hampered by blanket interprovincial quarantine measures imposed by the Atlantic provinces, whereas in the U.S., most interstate restrictions are focused on high-risk regions based on health data, contributing to a stronger domestic recovery for the U.S. carrier. Despite operating with these restrictions in place, we are laser-focused on gradually and strategically building back our airline using principles that will not only be key to our recovery, but will also be foundational to our long-term sustainability. With this in mind, we anticipate operating approximately 25% of our capacity in the fourth quarter compared to the same quarter in 2019, but we will continue to dynamically adjust capacity while considering passenger demand, quarantine rules, health warnings, travel restrictions, and border closures. In the third quarter, our domestic operations continued to see the beginning of signs of recovery, specifically with our transcontinental services and in Western Canada. To capitalize on these green shoots and pent-up travel demand, we launched the Infinite Canada Flight Pass in September, an innovative and unique product that allows customers to take an unlimited number of flights within Canada for up to three months for a fixed fee. 
The product was available for a limited time and highlights our team's agility in seizing niche opportunities as they arise. However, our domestic recovery remains fragile and uneven, partly due to disjointed approaches to reopening the economy, as well as interprovincial travel restrictions, such as those created by the Atlantic travel bubble, still in place. In the third quarter, we were very pleased to reopen our Maple Leaf Lounge at Calgary International Airport for eligible customers and with a spotlight on local products and suppliers. This is the third lounge we have reopened. Our lounges are, all feature our industry-leading Clean Care Plus biosafety measures, including enhanced cleaning and touchless processes, putting the health and safety of our customers and employees first. We will continue to gradually open lounges throughout our network as demand returns and safety measures permit. Looking to our transborder network, a high degree of uncertainty remains around the recovery timeline due to the evolving health situation in the United States, as well as the ongoing Canadian border closures. We do not expect a significant increase in transborder travel throughout the remainder of the year. However, the U.S. market remains a key component of our recovery and our long-term strategy. We have selectively resumed service to key U.S. cities to facilitate essential travel and retain a skeleton network after completely suspending all U.S. services early in the second quarter. While we cautiously build back our U.S. network, our partnership with United Airlines will be important to expand our reach in the United States and to draw feeder traffic to our network. Our North America recovery will be significantly aided by our modern and efficient fleet, which remains a competitive advantage for us. We took delivery of our 10th Airbus 220 in the third quarter and expect to have 15 by the end of the year. Additionally, we anticipate the reintroduction of the Boeing 737-800 aircraft in the first quarter of next year. Despite modifications made to our orders, these two aircrafts remain the core of our narrow-body fleet and enable us to efficiently serve transcontinental North America routes through improved economics and range while providing an excellent customer experience. Last week, we were pleased to be able to resume Air Canada Rouge operation, which will play an important role in strategically rebuilding our global network. As leisure travel resumes, we will selectively add the Rouge product, makeup of a narrow-body Airbus fleet to select North America leisure markets from Eastern Canada. Looking ahead to the December holiday period, we are making our Air Canada Jets fleet available to customers for commercial flights, providing an elevated level of comfort and service on several popular winter routes, including Toronto to Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, Barbados, Cancun, from Vancouver to Phoenix, Palm Springs, and Puerto Vallarta, and Montreal to Fort Lauderdale and Barbados, amongst a few others. The four all-business-class Airbus A319s typically transport professional sports teams and other charter groups. This initiative has garnered significant customer interest already and is another innovative example of how we are seizing niche opportunities in today's environment. The Jets and Rouge products will both be operated in accordance with Air Canada's biosafety protocols centered around our Clean Care Plus program. International passenger demand continues to be impeded by travel restrictions imposed globally and here in Canada. As such, as part of our recovery efforts, we are refocused our international network to select core markets such as London, Paris, Tokyo, Hong Kong, as well as our partners hubs where we can fully leverage our transatlantic joint venture with the Lufthansa Group to reach markets 
that we do not serve directly. In the quarter, we introduced complementary COVID-19 insurance coverage available for eligible Air Canada and Air Canada Vacations customers to give customers added confidence when booking flights and packages for travel abroad and to support our recovery in international markets. Initiatives such as this somewhat mitigate the uneven international recovery caused by the unilateral, uncoordinated border openings, as well as local restrictions imposed due to the second wave of coronavirus cases that many countries, specifically in Europe, are currently experiencing. However, we have seen the VFR market segment, or visiting friends and relatives, begin to recover, and we do anticipate this trend to continue. VFR traffic is typically strong on routes to China and India, and these markets will remain a priority for us as travel restrictions are lifted. Our high-volume Boeing 777, as well as our efficient Boeing 787, give us the right aircraft to serve this market segment. We are also pleased to have concluded a new commercial agreement with Qatar Airways, which will facilitate our non-stop service from Toronto to Doha, commencing in mid-December on a Boeing 787. This agreement will enable us to effectively serve many Middle Eastern markets beyond Doha and represents another example of our ability to quickly adapt to evolving market conditions. We will continue in these unpresented times to look for unique types of commercial opportunities moving forward. Over the course of the pandemic and through the third quarter, we have continued our focus on air freight to meet the immediate and exceptional demand for medical equipment, critical goods, and the regular movement of other time-sensitive air cargo. As a result, our third quarter cargo revenue increased by 39 million, or 22% compared to the same quarter in 2019. In addition to the more than 3,000 all-cargo international flights we have operated since March, in the fourth quarter, we plan to operate up to 100 all-cargo flights per week using a combination of Boeing 787, Boeing 777 aircraft, as well as four converted Boeing 777 and three converted Airbus 330s. We were the first airline globally to remove seats from aircraft to enable cargo capacity in the passenger cabin, which doubles the available cargo space on an aircraft. In addition to the all-cargo flights, our regular cargo service and the underbellies of passenger aircraft continues to perform well for us and plays an important role in supporting our international routes in the absence of typical passenger demand. We operate a profitable cargo business that is expected to deliver more than 850 million of revenue in 2020. We are very excited to be taking the Air Canada cargo business to the next level with our entry into the e-commerce world with our partners. Our objective is to grow cargo revenues using our existing fleet by providing specialized e-commerce service delivery. Our goal is to drive end-to-end value through enhanced technology, dynamic pricing, and transparency across the delivery supply chain. This new and exciting initiative will be implemented in phases and is expected to be completed over the next year or so in Canada. In addition, we are exploring the opportunity to convert several of our owned Boeing 767 aircraft to freighters, subject to concluding satisfactory arrangements with our pilots. We believe that this will be an exciting opportunity to leverage the growth of e-commerce and Air Canada's global footprint. Looking to aeroplant performance in the third quarter, member engagement and activities showed continued resiliency, underscoring the strength of the aeroplant brand. Co-brand credit card spend has largely recovered, 
outside of categories most impacted by the pandemic. Overall spend for the quarter was within 15% of last year's level, while card retention rates continued to be in line with historical norms. We are pleased with the solid execution on our entire loyalty strategy. In 2017, we made a promise to deliver a best-in-class loyalty program and smooth transition for customers, and we have passed several important milestones since then. Early last year, we seamlessly integrated Aeroplan and saw an immediate positive impact for the business. This past August, we shared the much-anticipated details of the program redesign, and we received enthusiastic feedback and praise from our members and travel and loyalty expert communities around the world. And over the weekend, we began the process of cutting over the state-of-the-art technology platforms as we prepared to launch new loyalty features and product for our customers. Looking to the future, we believe that the new programs, data capability, and technology platforms will be key to retaining and building customer loyalty and accelerating our demand recovery. Furthermore, we look forward to announcing significant new partnerships that will grow the program, increase appeal to all member segments, and accelerate revenue growth. Once again, I'd like to thank our teams and all areas of the airline for continuing to put the health and safety of our customers and each other first while delivering an excellent customer experience. With that, I will pass it off to Mike. Well, thank you, Lucy, and thanks to everyone for joining us on the call today. I would also like to thank our employees for their focus and dedication in this extremely challenging environment. Turning to our costs in the quarter on a capacity reduction of 81.7%, operating expenses decreased $3 billion, or 66%, compared to the same quarter in 2019, reflecting the significant progress we've made on managing variable costs and reducing fixed expenses and including a $72 million favorable adjustment to end of lease maintenance provisions. Wages, salaries, and benefits expense decreased $313 million, or 40%, largely on a 48% decrease in full-time equivalent employees. We continue to monitor the demand environment and will adjust staffing levels accordingly. Regional airline expense decreased $303 million, or 60%, reflecting the impact of reduced flying by JAZZ and other airlines operating flights on our behalf. Aircraft maintenance expense declined $209 million, or 82%, versus last year's third quarter on a lower volume of maintenance activity due to reduced flying year-over-year and the retirement of our Boeing 767 and Embraer 190 fleets. In anticipation of returning aircraft to lessors upon lease expiry, primarily Airbus Air, uh, 320s and regional aircraft, we updated our end-of-lease cost estimates in the quarter, which resulted in a reduction to maintenance provisions of $72 million. Moving on to special items, these amounted to a net operating expense reduction of $192 million, the majority of which was related to the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy Program, or Q's. You may recall that in July, the program was redesigned and extended until December 2020. The Government of Canada has now announced a further extension to June of 2021. We intend to continue to participate in the wage subsidy program subject to meeting the eligibility requirements. As Kayla mentioned earlier, since this pandemic began, we have raised almost $6 billion in liquidity. This was achieved through several transactions, including secured financings, equity and convertible note offerings, and most recently, 
sale leaseback transactions for nine Boeing 737 aircraft. In September, we concluded a private offering of two tranches of enhanced equipment trust certificates for a combined aggregate face amount of $740 million. We use the proceeds from the financing together with cash on hand to repay in full the U.S. $600 million 364-day term loan previously put in place in April of 2020. We also concluded a committed secured facility of $788 million to finance the purchase of our first 18 Airbus 220 aircraft. This secured financing replaces the bridge financing in the same amount put in place in April of 2020. At the end of September, we had $8.2 billion of unrestricted liquidity. This amount excludes the proceeds of $485 million from the sale and leaseback of the nine Boeing 737s, as these transactions occurred in early October. Following the sale and leaseback transactions and taking into account changes to the fair market value of certain assets, our unencumbered asset pool, including the value, excluding the value of Aeroplan, Air Canada Vacations, and Air Canada Cargo, sits at approximately $1.8 billion. We've also made progress with our company-wide fixed cost reduction and capital reduction and deferral program, which has now reached $1.5 billion for 2020, in addition to the significant projected capital commitment reductions for the coming years, which I will speak to in a moment. We continue to improve productivity and processes, as these are key in being as lean as possible coming out of this crisis. Turning to cash burn, a uh, net cash burn of $818 million, or approximately $9 million per day on average, in the third quarter was significantly better than our expectations. This was due to several factors, including the deferral or elimination of certain capital expenditures, higher cash receipts related to the Q's program, and additional working capital benefits resulting from both the deferral of supplier payments into future periods and from income and sales tax recoveries, which had been expected to occur in later periods. Air Canada uses gross capex in its calculation of net cash burn, which is before the impact of aircraft financing. Financing related to aircraft received in Q3 amounted to $130 million, or $1.4 million per day. Looking at the fourth quarter, we estimate a net cash burn of between $1.1 billion and $1.3 billion, or $12 million and $14 million per day on average. <clears throat> This net cash burn projection includes about $4 million per day in capital expenditures and $5 million per day in lease and debt service costs. The higher projected net cash burn versus the third quarter is primarily due to an increase in end of lease payments, given more aircraft are being returned to lessors in the current quarter. The stabilization of supplier payment deferrals and lower cash receipts related to the Q's program, in part due to the changes in the program. A higher level of capital expenditures reflecting additional 220 aircraft deliveries versus the third quarter also plays a part. Financing related to aircraft expected to be delivered in Q4 is projected at approximately $210 million, or $2.3 million per day. Turning to capital expenditures, we amended our agreement with Boeing to cancel 10 Boeing 737 aircraft deliveries from our firm order of 50 aircraft and to defer our remaining 16 aircraft deliveries over the late 2021 to 2023 period. We also concluded an amendment to our purchase agreement with Airbus, under which we are deferring 18 aircraft deliveries over 2021 and 2022, and will not be purchasing 12 Airbus 220 aircraft on order 
from our original firm order of 20, 45 aircraft. We continue to retain options for both seven, the Boeing 737 and Airbus 220 aircraft, providing significant fleet flexibility. These changes significantly reduce our projected capital commitments for the coming years. Compared to our projected capital expenditures at the end of 2019, through successful fleet restructuring and other initiatives, we have reduced our expected total from 2020 to 2023 capital expenditures by $3 billion. An updated projected capital expenditure table is provided in third quarter MDNA. Before turning it back to Kaelin, I'd like to thank employees once again for their devotion and hard work. I'm confident that together we can successfully manage through these very demanding times. With that, I'll turn it back to Kaelin. Thank you, Mike. The steps we have taken as part of our COVID-19 mitigation and recovery plan are positioning Air Canada to not only sustain itself during the pandemic, but also emerge as a strong and competitive, albeit smaller, carrier. Well positioned for the recovery when borders reopen, travel restrictions are lifted, and the broader economy is functioning again. Our financial position has been considerably strengthened and liquidity bolstered with a nearly $6 billion raised since March, in addition to lowering our total projected capital expenditures by around $3 billion over the 2020 to 2023 period through fleet restructuring and other capital reduction initiatives, as Mike just outlined. Our comprehensive and layered approach to biosafety is industry-leading and will continue to be enhanced and refined to build confidence in air travel. These efforts have been supported by several studies on the topic, including a leading Harvard study published last month that concluded when you couple the onboard ventilation systems, which filter out at least 99.97% of airborne viruses with other precautions, the risk of onboard transmission is below that of other routine activities in which many people continue to engage, such as grocery shopping, for example. We remain at the forefront of advocating the implementation of a measured science-based approach to travel restrictions, and our testing trial with McMaster Health Labs at Toronto Pearson has encouraged governments to look for science-based alternatives to blanket quarantines, such as the Alberta Pilot Project. There have also been significant developments made in rapid testing technology, and we are encouraged by Health Canada's approval of Abbott's ID Now COVID-19 rapid response test, as we have been in discussions with Abbott for some time. We acknowledge with interest the public statements made by Canada's Transport Minister yesterday regarding commencing immediate discussions this week with major airlines on possible aviation industry sector-specific financial support which our industry has been actively advocating for and which airlines in most OECD countries have received over the now nearly nine months since the start of the pandemic. According to IATA's chief economist, governments have already provided more than U.S. $160 billion of aid to airlines globally, recognizing the critical role they play in their country's economies. Beyond sustaining tens of thousands of direct and indirect jobs, a healthy Canadian airline industry is essential for Canada's economic recovery from COVID-19 and vital to securing our country's place in a reordered post-pandemic world. We will avoid further comment on this until such sector support materializes, at which time we will update the market. Our COVID-19 plan includes not only mitigation, but also recovery. And that recovery is going to be driven by several foundational elements our new Aeroplan program, our streamlined fleet, our new passenger service system, 
our competitive network that will be supported by our global airline partners, our cargo ambitions, our improved customer service and our employee culture, and our planned acquisition of Transat. The combination of our two companies will provide stability for Transat's operations and its stakeholders and will position Air Canada and indeed the Canadian aviation industry to emerge stronger as we enter the post-COVID-19 world. Now, before closing, as this will be my next to last earnings call before my retirement next February, I want to add a few more personal observations. I have enjoyed a special relationship with Air Canada for three decades, involved with many of our company's defining moments. The 1988-89 privatization and IPO, the company's defense against a hostile takeover bid in 1999, our merger with Canadian Airlines, the aftermath of 9-11, the 2003-2004 restructuring, and many others. But I'm especially proud of the company's transformation over the last decade, during which we built Air Canada into one of the world's leading carriers and a global champion for Canada, winning numerous customer and employee awards, growing our global network to all six inhabited continents, creating thousands of jobs, protecting pensions, producing record financial results, strengthening our balance sheet, delivering significant shareholder value, and above all, developing an entrepreneurial culture and engaged workforce. I need to publicly call out and thank our past and present extraordinary leadership teams as well as the efforts of all of the outstanding people of Air Canada who have supported me in this multi-year marathon with passion, commitment, and drive. I also want to thank you, our investment analyst community, as many of you have followed our story for the entire decade. You have challenged us and our evolving plans, strategies, and stated priorities with professionalism. Your analyses always motivated us to see how we stacked up against the best airlines in other geographies, whether that was on cost structure and capital allocation, revenue performance, fleet, global hubs, or labor relations. You kept us on our toes and held us accountable in the very public forum of these analyst calls. You truly made an effort to understand our business and stuck with us through the multi-year marathon. I've always thought that informed analysts make strong companies smarter. You have, in a word, made us smarter, and for that, I am grateful. Getting our succession right was extremely important for both the board and me, after all that we have achieved. As most of you know, Mike has been an invaluable partner and sounding board for me on virtually all aspects of our journey. He knows all of our strengths and opportunities and how we can lean into them. So I'm truly delighted that Mike has been endorsed as Air Canada's next CEO, and he and I, with the rest of our executive team, will work hard towards next February to ensure that Air Canada will be ready and able to tackle the post-COVID environment with the greatest of success. Thank you, and I'll be pleased to take some questions. Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone line. If you have a question and you are using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your device's keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while participants register for questions. We thank you for your patience. Our first question is from Walter Spratlin from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yeah, uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Walter. I guess I have to pre uh, preface my question with an assumption first uh, before I ask it. Uh, you know, the assumption being that we are in a rebounding, eventually rebounding scenario with vaccine 
uh, by third quarter next year. In that scenario, uh, I'll ask the question, do, do you think that given your fleet as it stands now with the cancellations and deferrals that you've announced, um, under that scenario of a vaccine in development late next year and a rebounding travel, do you, do you see any further cancellations or deferrals to your fleet, or is this kind of the fleet you're going to go with uh, on, under that type of scenario? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, and so what we've uh, looked at doing here is, is, uh, is, is basically making the decision uh, through a you know, combination of what our contractual obligations were to the, to the two aircraft manufacturers, uh, uh, looking at the age of our existing fleet. The, you know, the 767s are already of a certain age. And so we sort of made our bed on the basis that even if there is a rebound by the third quarter with, uh, you know, with, with a vaccine, that the vaccine is not going to be instantaneously uh, available throughout the planet that would you know, uh, uh, enable us to return to the kind of operation we had in 2019 as early as by the third quarter of next year. And so when we look at that, the fleet that you're seeing now with the uh, deferrals, uh, cancellations, and with the exits is basically the fleet that we're going to go with for the next uh, three-plus uh, years. But we, of course, have got some great optionality through our uh, Airbus and Boeing uh, contracts. Mike alluded to that. Um, and uh, we have uh, the ability to, uh, uh, even though we canceled parts of those orders, we have the ability, if there is a, a more optimistic uh, return, to, to uh, exercise our options uh, and, uh, and return to, uh, uh, you know, to additional deliveries, you know, say, starting in the 2022 year. Yeah, that, that, that flexibility makes a lot of sense. Um, absolutely. Turning to cargo, uh, would you say that your focus here on cargo, if you look at the revenue generated, what, what is the mix international versus domestic and what is the focus going forward uh, of, of cargo uh, in terms of what markets you'll be looking to address? Well, you know, look, I think some of this is, is going to have to uh, be rolled out, uh, you know, in the, in the fullness of time, obviously, for competitive reasons, uh, Walter, as you'll appreciate. But certainly most of our uh, uh, operation thus far has been in the international sphere. Um, and uh, we know that there are opportunities in the domestic sphere. Several, you know, we've been approached by several players. So we will, we will assess that in the fullness of time. But as we basically what we're announcing today is that Air Canada has made the, you know, the determination to uh, expand its cargo business and to uh, subject to getting our pilots uh, on, on board to uh, uh, implement some conversion of our 767s into uh, dedicated freighters. Uh, and those two factors will, will drive uh, a certain amount of both uh, uh, internet, primarily international, but uh, the, it has not been ruled out on the, on the domestic side. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, last question here is on, on just the long term, and Kaylin, you, you referenced this, that this will be a multi-year recovery. You know, I, I speak to a, a number uh, of investors, obviously, that have a wide range of views, and, and most are on the more pessimistic side when it when it when it um, deals with specifically business travel and long haul travel. Is there anything that you could offer in based on either data you've accumulated or or incidents taken from studies to to suggest that um, we we that perhaps long haul and business travel might come back uh, uh, you know, quicker than perhaps some of the more pessimistic scenarios out there, and the pessimistic ones are saying seven years plus. Yeah, no, no, we're not, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not at seven years plus. We're not in that uh, category of pessimism. 
uh, I would say that you know we, we continue to be in that three to five year time frame in terms of uh, you know in, in, in terms of getting back to 2019 levels. Uh, uh, but but there's no doubt that the pandemic you know there, there are three factors at play here, and I think people need to understand all three. One factor that's at play is the is the uh, state of all of these uh, travel restrictions, and and as Lucy alluded to, the the uncoordinated fashion that they're introduced, uh, modified, and it's almost on a daily basis. And that you know there there is a certain amount of, of traveler fatigue in, in the business uh, world. That traveler fatigue will last for quite a while, and you know until such time as everything is removed. So so that the the existence of the travel restrictions, the quarantine, the travel bubbles, the special rules that exist in many places uh, is, is, a, uh, is, is a very, very negative uh, factor that will have a lasting impact because people will say, you know, well, I want to travel somewhere and they get stuck on some corner of the world and there's a new restriction that's brought in without any consultation at the last minute. Um, uh, secondly, there is a real real there's a, a a real factor here of, uh, of of when does the demand return just you know based on on uh, uh, you know various companies travel restrictions and different habits that are adopted and all of the video conferencing and everything else there is a factor at play there uh, and then thirdly uh, you know our business and and many other airlines uh, around the world have built their businesses on connecting networks where people connect to travel and uh, therefore you know so many parts of a route network are dependent on the network working well. And so if parts of the network don't work well, that will impact other parts. And therefore, you know, that's why you see discussions around very large scale cancellations because so many of our routes were interdependent on other routes. And I think that that is something that uh, folks really need to, to bear in mind. Okay, uh, that's all my question. I just want to say that it, obviously a very trying time, but your efforts by you and Mike and the team have been very commendable. I'll pass it on. Thank, thank you very much, Walter. Thank you. Our following question is from Kevin Chang from CIBC. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, th thanks for taking my question this morning. And again, uh, congrats, Kaylin, on your retirement and, uh, and Mike on, on your uh, uh, taking over the role as CEO here. Um, maybe if I just go back to your, your prepared remarks, Kaylin, I think you said if, if you look at the lost revenue based on where U.S. traffic trends are, it was about $600 million to to the top line. If I think of the flow through and, and what your cash burn was in the quarter, if my math is correct, it seems to suggest to get to break even cash burn, you need to have uh, revenue or demand kind of back to, you know, I guess, 40% of pre-pandemic levels. Is that kind of a right ballpark to think of, of where cash flow neutral or cash burn neutral uh, starts to make sense for, for, for Air Canada? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll punt that to, to, to Mike because we've done a lot of analysis. I'm not sure how far we can go in terms of uh, guidance here, but uh, uh, but I just want to make a quick comment, uh, Mike, just before I, I turn that over. On the question of the differential with the U.S. carriers, you know, the reason we called that out is to say, while you know, uh, obviously uh, traffic is low in the U.S., uh, traffic is low in Canada, people assume it's more or less the same, but what we're saying is that because of the very onerous Canadian travel restrictions, we're 550 to $600 million less than the average of the three carriers. That's sort of why we were calling that, that number out. The cash burn is not a direct correlation because, as Mike mentioned, there are a lot of factors that go into what we have uh, deferred into the fourth quarter, and so you almost have to look at the, you know, if you were to look at a cash burn number, you'd have to almost look at it, you know, over the three quarters to get a, an average. But on the question of the break-even, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, turn it over to Mike. Uh, good morning, Kevin. Um, so we, um, there's no doubt uh, that our break-even point has declined. 
uh, versus where it was historically because we've done a very good job taking out fixed costs. And that, that is the key, uh, key issue. Uh, and then obviously we've also pushed out capital expenditures. So that break-even point is, is dropping um, over, over, you know, over the last couple of months. And there's no doubt that our variable margin on those incremental sales that we otherwise could have had if it was a similar environment to the United States uh, is, is relatively high. Uh, and, and so we don't have a number to give the market right now as to what the break-even point, because that is changing all the time, uh, frankly, as we get better at reducing our fixed cost structure and, and modifying our, our capital expenditures. But certainly, I want to leave the message to the market that that break-even point is, is, is declining uh, from where we were historically. That, that, that's helpful. And maybe just my second question, uh, a lot, lot of comments on cargo. I think last week there was an article um, noting that, you, that Air Canada was one of the bidders to be a logistics provider uh, for the Canadian government in terms of the shipment of, of, a, of a future COVID-19 vaccine. Just wondering, is there anything you need to do to your fleet in terms of the way it's configured today to be able to handle pharmaceuticals? Are there any processes you need to implement to, 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 to move what is you know, more highly regulated type of cargo versus general cargo? My, again, the fairly detailed question, and I, our team's working on this, uh, and we were one of the uh, uh, participants in the RFP process the Government of Canada is putting together. Uh, certainly, as you know, there's going to be specific uh, requirements such as temperature controlled. Uh, we may not you know, step into that type of, uh, of investment, but more our view is what can we do with our existing fleet and how can we partner potentially with other participants in the RFP process to make this a very, very efficient process for everybody. That's it for me. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you for your comments uh, very much, Kevin. Thank you. Our following question is from Chris Murray from ATB Capital Markets. Please go ahead. <clears throat> Thanks. Good morning, folks. And, and let me echo uh, <clears throat> my regards to both Kaylin and Mike. Um, I guess my first question, guys, thinking about, you know, as we move into 21, one of the, uh, one of the strategic initiatives is around um, the acquisition of Transat. And when we go back to when you first proposed an acquisition, you know, the world's certainly changed a lot, including, you know, your restructuring of Rouge and, and parking a lot of aircraft. You know, can you explain um, maybe how you think Transat fits into, you know, a world over the next three to five years um, and how, how you take advantage of the brand and, and what they bring to you? Okay. No, it's a very, uh, very important question, uh, Chris. So uh, we liked uh, Transat before uh, COVID, and we continue to like Transat after COVID. Uh, uh, and it's basically, you know, as simple as this. It's to say that uh, as, as we look at, uh, uh, you know, the uh, changes that are taking place in the industry, uh, you know, we're, we recognize that Transat has had one of the leading uh, uh, leisure brands around, and we've always uh, appreciated that in them. We were going to have a lot of questions around, you know, where it fits in uh, with Rouge and so on. But now, with the uh, with the set, with the uh, uh, removal of the 767s from the Rouge fleet, this does give us a lot of uh, uh, you know additional heft as we look to re-enter some of those markets as they start coming back. So when we look at uh, you know what we will be able to do with uh, Transat uh, in in some of these uh, international leisure markets uh, through their uh, you know attractive fleet 330s, which of course we operate ourselves, and the 321 Neos that they have on order. Those aircraft fit very well within our uh, uh, fleet expertise. Their brand is a strong leisure brand, 
And so, you know, when we look uh, forward to uh, competing with uh, other international carriers that are operating in leisure, and there, of course, there are many, many uh, European competitors that uh, fly, uh, you know, across the Atlantic, and uh, we, we expect to be a stronger competitor as a result of that. And certainly with the, seven, with the 25 767s having exited the fleet, uh, you know, as the market uh, returns, we will be well positioned to, to respond. And so, you know, uh, people often do uh, mergers or acquisitions to, to gain uh, cost synergies. That is not what this exercise is about. This is much more about revenue synergies and expansion into the leisure market for us. And uh, while it will be different post-COVID than pre-COVID, there's no question about that. And, and while we will be smaller and they will be smaller, uh, remember, you know, our, our requirement is that on closing that their downsizing is, uh, is at least uh, proportional to our downsizing. Uh, while we will be smaller and they will be smaller, we will be well positioned for the recovery as a result of their good brand and, their, and the uh, uh, breadth of these uh, leisure operations. All right, that's fair. Um, and then my other question is around testing. And so a couple of parts of this. I mean, if I look at you, where your, your business has sort of been operating as even when we go into Q4 and maybe early next year, um, most of your international travel seems to be at least heading over the Atlantic. A number of the European governments, the UK, Italy, France, and Spain have been talking about you know, testing protocols and, and, and shortening timing. Um, just overall, how are you feeling about your ability to move forward on a testing regimen on a regular, on a regular basis just to, just to facilitate international travel? You know, t testing has to be, we, we launched that uh, testing protocol to really prove the point, and we did it uh, really under the auspices of the McMaster Health Lab's uh, uh, oversight. So it was not a you know, sort of a commercial testing uh, dynamic. It was a scientific one. Uh, obviously, that, you know, that cannot be replicated in that fashion by us uh, throughout, uh, you know, throughout the world. Uh, that's not realistic. And so our expectation is that uh, if the uh, uh, testing protocol is as proves positive as it has been based on the, uh, you know, uh, more than 35,000 uh, tests already done. Uh, we would have the government, and this is why we're working with the government to try to uh, uh, prove the case, uh, to set up these sorts of uh, protocols. And you know, as people arrive into uh, the country, uh, they have the test, and then the expectation is that the quarantine will be reduced. And this is what's going on in Alberta right now. But we could see a test on departure and a test on arrival. And I think that will, you know, at some stage, that will be the way to really break the back of the quarantine requirements. Uh, uh, but I think it'll come in, in phases. I, I will be very, very happy to see, you know, uh, all Canadian airports that have international traffic uh, to have a test on, on arrival that is overseen by, by the government of Canada and the, and the provinces, uh, and that the quarantine can be reduced from 14 days to, say, five days uh, based on a certain number of uh, protocols. And that's really what we are working for. Uh, on the outbound side of things, of course, you know, uh, travelers would love to know that everyone who is on that aircraft has tested negative before boarding the aircraft. That requires rapid testing, and that's why we're anxious to see the, these Abbott uh, tests uh, more in circulation. We know that there have been some, uh, some supply chain uh, challenges uh, that relate to them, but we're anxious to see the government do that. So we continue to work both on the departure and on the arrival testing. It is feasible. Uh, but, of course, it's not going to exist around the world, you know, instantaneously. So it'll take some, you know, sort of blocking and tackling to, to get it there. Okay, fair enough. Um, and then if I can, just one, one last kind of cleanup question. Mike, um, is there any idea what the magnitude of your Q's payments or will, be, will be in Q4? 
Yeah, they're going to be slightly lower than I think we we recorded about 190 million dollars in Q3. Uh, they'll be slightly lower than that because the, uh, the the per person amount is dropping a bit in in Q4. So I I would say in probably in the range of 125. Okay, fair enough. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. A following question is from Karnak Gupta from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Thank you and uh, good morning. Uh, I would like to echo uh, comments on uh, Kevin, uh, Kellen, and uh, Mike uh, for the successful career and uh, and the new leadership ahead. Um, so maybe the first one um, on the cash burn guidance. So I, I think you just said uh, the the queues will be down, obviously from Q3. Uh, but wondering uh, in your cash burn guidance for Q4, uh, which I think implies uh, three to five million dollar per day in operating cash burn. What are your assumptions for uh, for trans border restrictions? And perhaps any sense on on the traffic. I know capacity is down 75%, but what are you expecting for U.S. transporter and traffic? Yeah. Good morning, Konark. It's Mike. Um, unfortunately, we're not expecting much change from Q3. Um, I think, as Lucy said in her prepared comments, uh, transporter. We don't expect a lot of additional activity uh, in in uh, in Q4. There, you know, there may be some additional sun activity. Um, into the Florida markets and into the you know, Caribbean markets, uh, but it's not going to be material uh, to, to move the dial. And, and again, the, you know, the cash burn in Q4 is, is really comprised of, um, you know, capex is a little bit higher than it was in, in Q3, which is about a million dollars a day. Um, you know, lease returns, we're starting to return a lot more planes, and that's going to be probably at least a million dollars extra a day. Uh, now that has a long-term benefit because it gets rid of costs that are that are currently we're assuming, and the rest of it is, as you said, you know, EBITDA and uh, and working capital, which you know obviously has an opportunity to improve depending on how the how the markets improve over, over the next couple of months. Okay, no, that's good. Thank you. And um, I just want to kind of run by by you guys uh, my hypothesis here. Um, I know obviously vaccine is being developed and it could be around the corner here, but. You know, as soon as the vaccine comes out, perhaps, like, would you expect uh, new bookings to rebound first or, or the traffic? And the reason I ask is obviously the new bookings will bring you cash, uh, while some initial traffic rebound might be a use of cash given it's already booked. Yeah, I think, I think our, our sense is that there would be some new bookings. I'll ask Lucy to, to reflect on this. Lucy studies the uh, booking trends very closely. Uh, I think that there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, demand for uh, this VFR traffic, visiting friends and relatives dynamic. And so I think there are a lot of people who are very, very hesitant to, to make any travel arrangements now based on, uh, on, on these restrictions and quarantines. Even if they feel safe to travel and we've made all these precautions that it's safe to be on the airplane, they can't justify coming back and taking two weeks at home with a, on a quarantine dynamic. And so they're just simply not, uh, not, not uh, booking future travel. But the interplay between the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the travel that has already been booked and paid for uh, versus the new bookings, uh, Lucy, you know, I'll ask you to comment on that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, hello. Um, there's no doubt that um, you know, two, two um, uh, you know, different market segments, perhaps, that I could comment on. The first is when we look at the, the VFR markets or the leisure markets, we anticipate that, you know, with a vaccine or with changes to, to you know, travel restrictions, notably, uh, you know, the quarantine upon return, we believe that those markets would probably rebound the quickest. 
the one area, though, that we are monitoring very closely, and we've actually taken a look at what we have observed in other countries where we've seen the removal of the quarantine restriction, and it pertains to business traffic. So in the current environment, you know, because there are many different, uh, um, you know, restrictions that stifle traffic, quarantine for sure is the most important one when it comes to business. And our belief is that, you know, with the uh, introduction of a vaccine, uh, we would actually see close-in business demand materialize, where today most of the bookings we have on hand are leisure bookings. So if the environment changed, we believe that the new bookings that we would start to see would really be more geared at SME and, uh, and business travel. No, that, that's great, Philip. Thank you. Um, and then uh, talking about, obviously, the bookings here, maybe perhaps I can ask you on the advanced ticket sale liability. Uh, looks like the rate of decline in that liability item slowed in Q3 versus Q2. Um, can you share any underlying trends in, in cash bookings and cash refunds? And also remind us, uh, if, if you can, what portion of this liability is in refundable tickets and, and travel vouchers, please? Sure. It's Mike. Um, so... In Q3, um, uh, cancellations or refunds, sorry, uh, slowed a bit uh, versus Q2. So that's part of, that's part of the, uh, the, the rationale. Uh, and, and revenues were up a little bit as well. So those, those two components would, uh, are the support for the, uh, for the change in the, uh, in the advanced ticket sales. And then on, on refundable fares, uh, you know, roughly... You know, roughly 65%, two-thirds are in of that amount are in ref, refundable fares. Okay, thank you. And last one for me, Mike. Thank you. Sorry, for sorry, that. Not, I, not, not, I'm not sorry. Not. Let me correct that. About two-thirds of that amount are in non-refundable fares, um, and about 20% uh, of that amount is in refundable fares. Um, sorry, so two-thirds two is non-refundable, 20% uh, is refundable, and the rest would be uh, something else? It, it was advanced it's for future bookings. Oh, I see. Thank you. Okay. Okay, last one for me uh, before I turn it over. Cargo. Um, so I, I think I heard uh, you converted about four Boeing 777s and three A330s. Um, are, are these conversions permanent and do the freighter specs? And no, no, okay. uh, what would yeah, – sorry. No, no, I was going to say, no, it's a, it's, it's a good clarification. I, I mean, if, if we weren't uh, clear. No, the 777 the, the, uh, and 330s, these are temporary uh, during this uh, time of uh, COVID, so to speak. Uh, these are temporary conversions which are intended to be reverting to uh, passenger uh, uh, aircraft, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in due course. When we were referring to uh, freighter conversions, of our seven six uh, of some of our seven six sevens that those would be permanent conversions, meaning we would be getting into the freighter business, which is uh, obviously an important uh, step for Air Canada. And we would only do that with the, uh, you know, approval of our pilots on a uh, uh, on, on a uh, uh, on, on terms and conditions for that flying. But uh, those would be uh, if if executed, those would be permanent uh, conversions of some of those seven six seven aircraft. Oh, no, that, that's great clarification, Kayla. I uh, just wanted to understand on the 767 conversion, if you can share us. I, I understand that it, it, it's obviously uh, confidential at this point, but um, are you looking at a big fleet of conversion 767s, and what is the timing? Is it, could that be in 21? Could that be 22 or beyond? I, I think we'll start in 21. Um, we, we haven't yet fully uh, completed all our plans, but certainly uh, we have the opportunities to convert uh, a couple in 2021, 
and and test the market. Um, again, subject to the pilots uh, coming to terms with pilots. Uh, but we certainly have uh, the opportunity to expand that um, as uh, as the market grows. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you for your uh, nice remarks, Connor. Thank you. Our following question is from Hunter K from Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, Kaylin, can you help me understand? Um, in terms of the vaccine, I know this is a very dynamic situation, but uh, can, can you help us understand, this isn't necessarily an airline question, but just how the approval and distribution of a vaccine in Canada will work um, as it relates to FDA approval. Can, can the vaccine be distributed and administered without FDA approval in Canada? Can, can you help us get a timeline for some of the gating items right, right. Uh, that we should yeah. think of in Canada? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, so first of all, FDA approval in and of itself will not be adequate to distribute the vaccines in Canada. It, it does require the Canadian health authorities uh, on top of that. Uh, I know that obviously the U.S. Uh, process has been under this, you know, warp speed uh, dynamic, uh, uh, has, has been moving these, uh, these uh, you know, various vaccines at, uh, at pace and totally uh, supportive of that. Canada has uh, pre-ordered large quantities of uh, vaccines, you know, sort of they've gotten into the queue uh, uh, early, which was obviously a good sign on, on, on from uh, Canada's perspective. Uh, and I would say that if FDA is there, the assumption is that the Canadian health authorities would move quickly uh, on, the, on the back of that. But the, uh, uh, you know, there are some uh, circumstances uh, in which uh, they may choose to go more, more slowly. We hope that would not be the case if the, uh, if the tests have been proven to be adequately uh, robust. Uh, in terms of distribution, I mean, this, is, this has always been the problem, and we're even seeing it right now with respect to the, to the rapid uh, tests, the, the Abbott uh, rapid tests. Uh, the, the supply chain uh, complexity here is, uh, is very, very large, and I think that governments generally are not well-suited to moving quickly on, on uh, supply chain issues, and I think that, that is a risk factor here for sure. Uh, so that's why I'm saying I'm cautiously optimistic and I know the market, you know, sort of has gotten out ahead of everybody uh, this morning on the uh, on, on on what this vaccine means and 90% efficacy, et cetera. But but basically, uh, I, I would be cautiously optimistic, uh, and not assuming that it's distributed, you know, instantaneously uh, throughout the planet, because of course we know that's not the case. And again, given that air travel touches, you know, so many continents at the same time, uh, I think that uh, you know a word of caution has to be brought to bear before we get ahead of our skis here. Okay. And then uh, while we're talking about uh, government, can you give us the latest on um, Transport Canada's uh, certification time on the MAX? And, and I'll also just add, by the way, my congratulations to you, Kaylin. It's been, been great working with you in this short period of time. And Mike, you too. I'm looking forward to working with you as well. Thank you very much, uh, Hunter. More and closely. appreciate yeah. yeah. Of course. Appreciate, <laughs> appreciate the good words. Um, so, so on, on uh, uh, the, uh, the MAX uh, situation, uh, you know, of course, the uh, Transport Canada is one of the key regulators involved in the MAX certification process. They've been uh, following the, uh, you know, the decisions uh, of the FAA throughout the, uh, the, the, the piece and have had communications, participated uh, in, uh, in, in uh, some of the, uh, you know, the, the trials that have gone on over the last uh, several months. Uh, we don't have uh, a definitive uh, date, but the, the way it's uh, playing out now is that uh, you know there would be we expect uh, there to be a uh, uh, airworthiness directive uh, issued this year 
but that the that our expectation at this moment in time is that the airplane would only be uh, flying uh, next year, uh, in you know early next year, and in Canada, uh, and uh, you know we say in Canada or, or to Canada, so that of course includes any U.S. carriers that might have ability to fly uh, sooner would not be able to fly to Canada until uh, early next year. From our perspective, you know, given the current dynamic, that is not uh, something that is necessarily a bad thing right now. Uh, as we uh, are, you know, get ourselves uh, geared up to uh, complete our training protocols, our additional requirements that have come out of the FAA uh, and out of Transport Canada. Transport Canada had some uh, issues that they worked alongside EASA with, and uh, those are now also being uh, worked uh, worked through. But uh, you know, from all indications, it's uh, uh, heading in the right direction for an airworthiness directive this year, and a lifting of the ban for uh, you know customer travel early next year. Thank you very much. And thanks again, uh, Hunter, for your, uh, your good words, and uh, look uh, forward to uh, seeing you follow the company for a long time. Thank you. Thank you. The following question is from Savvy Site from Raymond James. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning all. Um, Kayla and Mike, I'd like to echo the remarks and congratulations here on the call so far. Um, I just have a few kind of follow-up questions to some of the commentary made so far. Just maybe first, Lucy, kind of based on your comments, should we expect capacity declines in 4Q to moderate from 3Q levels across all regions, with maybe perhaps kind of the most moderation in the domestic market and least in the transporter? And do you expect that kind of to continue into 1Q based on what you see so far? I'll ask Lucy to comment, but it's, but it's, it's quite dynamic, Savvy, based on, on how the travel restrictions moderate and whether the, these uh, testing uh, trials lead to a reduction in quarantine. I said that could be a major yeah. change in our current thinking, but you know, Lucy has uh, set the capacity plan for, for Q4, and maybe you could just comment, uh, Lucy, on that. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So basically, um, and, and maybe one, uh, just one comment I wanted to make because we're on the subject of you know, testing and quarantines, but if we look at just the test that's just been recently launched in uh, Alberta. So basically, um, we would be in a position to quickly be able to react to that if we do see a change in demand as a result of um, the, the quarantine changes, uh, we would be in a position to be able to uh, alter our, our capacity plans for the fourth quarter to perhaps you know, add more transborder flying from Western Canada uh, into the United States, uh, into Hawaii, for example. So those are the kinds of things that we're, that we're watching very, very closely. And with respect to other markets, um, you know, domestic Canada, we continue to see um, a good uh, improving recovery, I should say, within, uh, within the domestic markets. Um, you know, the interwest and uh, transcon markets are the ones that are uh, most solid, and of course, um, you know, because of the the travel uh, bubble restrictions that we were referring to for Atlantic Canada, it does, of course, stifle the demand into uh, into the Maritimes. With respect to the transborder networks, um, we continue, you know, to operate a skeleton schedule, uh, but with a very, very close eye for Q4 and Q1 on the uh, U.S. Sun markets, which you know we are now in the peak of uh, that uh, you know booking window for. Q4, Q1, so we're going to obviously watch that very, very closely. So that's helpful. Thank you. And then um, just like on the cash break-even commentary, and, and, uh, if I might be so cute, you know, U.S. airlines had pointed to maybe 
60 to 70 percent of revenue to get cash break even and uh, without kind of giving an actual level i was just wondering if there's something fundamentally different at air canada that would result in a kind of a lower level or a high lower level of uh, getting to cash break even no I, there's nothing fundamentally different between air canada and the three large uh, network carriers in the u.s our cost structures pre-covid were very similar um, and our productivity levels were, were fairly similar. The, the only thing we can say is that I think some of the steps that we've taken and the speed that we've taken these steps as part of this uh, COVID mitigation plan, given the fact that we didn't have uh, sector support from, uh, from the government, uh, you know, required us to actually move really, really quickly to take out an additional layer of costs that, uh, you know, I'm not sure that, that uh, you know, was at the, same, at the same pace in the United States. And, and to that end, sure. you just got to be careful, obviously, as you know, everyone uh, may define cash burn differently uh, or yeah. break even differently. Uh, and so it's, it, I, would ca- I would caution you on, 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 the, uh, on the benchmarking. Makes sense. And then just my last follow-up on the cargo front. You know, prior to the crisis, we were looking at oversupply in the kind of the global cargo market. Is your decision here to expand that, kind of get into that dedicated, is that based on a view that, you know, we might not have as many wide-body aircraft uh, in in the kind of the global capacity here for the next several years? Is is that what changed? I, I think I think there's two factors. I think certainly I think that is one of the factors. Uh, but we also believe there will be a incremental or accelerating growth of e-commerce. And, and we're well positioned to take advantage of, of taking a piece of that marketplace. And so that's, that's, I think, of the two factors, that would be the more important one from, from our perspective. And, and, and think of it like this, Sammy, that, you know, it's, it's a, it, so those are the two drivers, you know, sort of lower number of wide bodies available in circulation plus the e-commerce opportunity. But then when you couple a, uh, you know, a, a network, a large passenger aircraft network with a dedicated freighter network in that environment, it doesn't have to be a big, you know, the idea doesn't have to be a, uh, a very, very large uh, dedicated freighter network, it, you know, you could actually see lots of synergies which, uh, which can expand, you know, uh, a uh, you know, $850 million revenue base that we're starting with. Makes sense. All right, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Following question is from Cameron Dirksen from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, and, and good morning. And, and let me uh, echo my congratulations to uh, both Kaylin and, and Mike as well. Um, a question really for Mike, I'm uh, just uh, looking at the, the CapEx numbers for the next two years, $1.4 billion in 21 and, and roughly $1.8 billion in 2022. Are there any aircraft deliveries in those numbers over those two years where there would be potentially some financing so that the net CapEx number would be lower than that? I think uh, all aircraft deliveries over those two years are, are assumed to be financed. Um, and how many are there after all the, the I guess, deferrals uh, and cancellation of orders? Uh, just trying to get a, a sense of what, yeah, I guess, financial would be coming in. Yeah, I don't have that number off the top of my head. I think uh, next year in 2021, we've got, uh, I think we've got uh, three uh, seven, 737s coming in towards the end of the year. And on the 220s, I believe we have 12, so 15 next year. Uh, and then in 2022, I think we have the remaining uh, uh, six uh, 220s. And uh, I think we have nine uh, uh, maxes coming in, in in that year. Okay, no, that, that's very helpful. Don't, don't hold me to those numbers, but I think that's roughly what, what the math is, basically. And we, okay. we, can, we can firm that up, basically, after the fact. There's no issue giving you the number of aircraft 
expected to be delivered over in the, in those two fleet types over the next couple of years. Okay, perfect. No, that's that's very helpful. And just you know, the second question for me, just on I guess sort of on the cost structure. Um, have you at this point significantly reduced your airport footprint? I mean, obviously going to be a smaller airline here for the next few years. I'm just wondering if there's still some cost savings to come from uh, from that. So, so, so uh, Cameron Kalen here, and again, thank you for your comments earlier. Uh, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, you know, we're aggressively looking at uh, our uh, airports, you know, the key, the large airports. And, of course, as you know, we've pulled out of uh, some of the uh, uh, stations that we announced closures, you know, from the first uh, route announcement. Uh, so the answer is yes, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, you saw what we included in our release this morning about uh, looking at 95 additional uh, routes, and were that to happen, obviously, you'd, you'd see a smaller footprint in airports there as well. But, of course, we've put that on pause pending these uh, discussions with the, with the government. Uh, so, you know, the, there's not, I wouldn't say that there's a tremendous amount more to come, uh, you know, barring this, this discussion on the 95 um, uh, route suspension. Okay, that, uh, that's helpful. Thanks very much. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you. Our following question is from Tim James from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks, um, good morning. Um, congratulations, Kaylin, on your, uh, your retirement. It's uh, certainly well-deserved. And Mike, congratulations on the appointment. Uh, looking forward to your, your continued success. Um, I just have one question remaining at this point, um, and, and I'm, I'm thinking for those of us that are maybe a little more optimistic on the recovery, um, if it does end up occurring more quickly than expected, outside of pilot training costs, which I think are pretty well understood, are there any other temporary costs or inefficiencies that we should think about um, that would be unusual, not necessarily continuing? Uh, as it relates to ramping back up the business, if it does need to be done um, more quickly? No, no I, I think, look, I, I think that the, the, the key drivers to, to ramping back up is, are, you know, availability of aircraft on, on, a, time, on a timeline and a schedule that we like, uh, uh, the pilot uh, you know, training for those aircraft uh, types, uh, and of course, you know availability of, uh, of uh, slots and uh, you know uh, access to the uh, preferred uh, gates and this sort of thing. We are not giving up any of our slots at slot-constrained airports. We have uh, we have very very carefully uh, held on to them, and we are going to look for creative ways to ensure that if there's a, a use it or lose it dynamic, that we're going to uh, use them uh, adequately to preserve access. Uh, in terms of aircraft. You know, we, yet while we've exited a lot of aircraft to get the costs out, uh, as we mentioned, we do have some optionality. And based on the number of bankruptcies going on in the, in the space elsewhere in the world, we know there are going to be a lot of uh, aircraft available on short notice. You saw what we did uh, last year with the WOW aircraft. When WOW went into bankruptcy, we, we quickly picked up, uh, what, eight, 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 uh, eight uh, uh, Airbus uh, 321s uh, at, at that time. Uh, 321s, yeah. 321s at that time, uh, you know, almost... Uh, you know, in, in a couple of months. And so there are going to be a lot of opportunities for short-term aircraft. And so then they, they will, that will, you know, result, of course, in pilots. But our pilots, the way we've structured our uh, uh, deal with our pilots is that, uh, you know, there have not been permanent uh, terminations for the, for the uh, uh, major part. So pilots are still uh, available on a recall basis. Uh, so that could be wrapped up as well. And then if you're looking at something that extends beyond, if you're looking beyond, say, 2021, uh, the options on the MAXs and on the uh, uh, A220s 
uh, are able to be actioned, and that's you know based on our original pricing, which was quite attractive in both of those cases, you know, given that they were large orders. So you could see us you know ramping back into our original preferred fleet type. You know, but there are usual uh, uh, requirements of maintenance and you know getting maintenance slots. Uh, for you know, heavy maintenance uh, uh, dynamics and that, if you try to do that at the last minute, that sometimes becomes challenging. But we have taken into account the possibility of some requirement to ramp up more quickly than we are currently planning. Uh, we would obviously we'd be delighted to have that would be a high cost problem to have. But we think that the uh, you know as I say the combination of, uh, of of the various drivers of this, including the network effect. You know that's why I, I need to underscore the the network effect. Uh, you know, it, it's going to take, before us to get to 2019 levels, it, you know, it's still going to take several years in our view. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for your, thanks for your generous words. Appreciate it. Thank you. The following question is from Helene Baker from Cohen. Please go ahead. Um, thanks very much, Operator. Thanks, um, everybody, for squeezing my question in. So, so um, Kaylin, uh, I know you have one more call, but congratulations, and Mike, same to you. Um, any thoughts on CFO succession? <laughs> you know, you, uh, well, of course, you'll be you'll be amongst the first to know. As much as we'd love to declare that here today on the call, we'll make sure that you're amongst the first to know. We will be announcing that at the beginning of the at the beginning of the year. Okay, that's fair enough. And then the other question I had is on um, the max order book. Why, can you just remind us why you have that aircraft on order at all? Why you're not just focusing on the A220 and the A320neos or A321neos as, as the 767 replacement? So first of all, the, the, when we made the original uh, decision on the 7378, uh, uh, you know, we, we uh, at that stage we compared uh, its uh, functionality and its, you know, the, the uh, cost drivers that, that uh, what what missions we needed it to accomplish, what the cost structure was to accomplish those missions, and what was the best aircraft to to, to do that. And, and I think, you know, we were very transparent, and and I would say uh, uh, I can even repeat it today that we always considered the C-Series as it then was, the A220, as being the best aircraft in its category. Uh, so we thought that the, that the C-Series, the A220, was better than the 737-700 MAX, MAX, uh, you know, the, the 7, and, and, uh, and was better than the A319. Uh, we considered, however, the 737-8 to be the best of that size when compared to the A320, and we always liked the 321neo as being the best in the large category, materially better than the 7379. And of course, uh, you know, while uh, you know, we had enough missions to accomplish uh, you know, all of that and therefore have uh, several uh, fleet types, we're now in the, in the position and certainly you know, if we complete our acquisition of, uh, of Transat, we'll have the opportunity to have 321neos coming in sooner than later. Uh, but uh, we, we did like the 7378 for the missions that it was intended, and we still do. And just to add on that, we do take in our, into our economic analysis the friction costs associated, or uh, the lack of efficiencies potentially by not having a, a, a larger fleet in one fleet type. So that's all considered, and, and again, to Kalen's point, uh, we spent a long time, and we like we liked the, the, uh, the 7378, we like the 220, and we like the 321. We think those, given our, given our profile, are the, uh, are the right planes for Air Canada as we go forward. 
Right. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's very helpful. Thanks, Elaine. Thank you. Our following question is from Jamie Baker from J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning. And uh, gentlemen, my congratulations uh, to both of you. I, I can't say we've been here as long as others on the equity side, but we have on the credit side. Uh, <laughs> and, and Mark wanted me to, uh, to add his congratulations as well. Uh, Mike, the um, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Um, the $72 million reduction in maintenance reserves unleashed aircraft, can, can you discuss that calculus a bit more? Was that an Air Canada-only phenomenon or something you negotiated with lessors that kind of flew by uh, in your prepared remarks? Yeah, so we have a liability on our books uh, that represents uh, the expected end of lease payments for lease planes. And and we look at that every quarter. And so we look at it this quarter, given the relative inactivity of some plane types, like 320s and some of the regional aircraft, um, we, uh, the end of lease of payments uh, declined uh, okay. for the planes that were expected to be returned the next year or so. So it was really a function of inactivity. Because as you know, these end of lease payments is you know, typically a, you have to return it at half-life or whatever. And, and uh, so given, given the fact that a lot of these planes are grounded, uh, that liability has declined and therefore the reduction in the, uh, in the maintenance provision. Okay, that, make, that makes perfect sense. Um, and, and also, can you expand on the, the, I guess, our scope provisions that you mentioned in regards uh, you know, to the pilots and all freighter aircraft? Yeah, James Kalen here. So, yeah, so, so as, as you know, uh, similar to the U.S. Uh, airlines, you know, our uh, pilots have uh, scope on uh, all of the flying that Air Canada does, including uh, uh, cargo flying, freighter flying. And so uh, we would look to have, you know, rates that are more competitive with cargo carriers to operate these dedicated freighters. You know, we had uh, Air Canada was in the freighter business twice in the past, and neither mm-hmm. of those two circumstances were uh, were, were uh, you know particularly uh, appealing successes. And so, for for this time around, to get it right, uh, especially with the opportunity that arises with the fewer number of wide bodies in circulation and the e-commerce opportunity, we think that a a the right kind of deal with the right kind of cost structure would make sense. Uh, and so, we're in discussions with our pilots to. Uh, to try to come to the right outcome here. So it's a lack of dedicated freighter wage rates that are in the contract right now? Correct. Okay. I understand better now. Thank you very much, and congratulations again. Take care. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Our last question is from Stephen Trent from City. Please go ahead. Oh, yes. Uh, good morning, everybody, and thanks very much for taking my question. Um, I extend my congrats as well, Kellen and Mike. That's terrific. Um, Thank you, Stephen. Just one or just one very quick follow-up for me, um, and I apologize for the background noise. Um, when you think about uh, longer term, the impact that we're seeing from the pandemic, has anything in the economics of fleet financing given you any any reason to think differently about uh, leasing versus buying? Or is this just a matter of uh, looking at where the, you know, the, um, the short-term cost is uh, uh, most advantageous? Uh, good morning, Stephen. It's Mike. Uh, a very interesting question. Certainly, uh, long-term interest rates are, are lower at this point in time and expected to be lower. So financing a plane uh, will potentially become come cheaper as, as time goes on, um, you know, if, you, if you fix the rate. 
On the other side, to Kaelin's earlier comments, we think there will be uh, some supply of planes uh, in the marketplace uh, over the next couple of years, and so, the, so leasing rates should be more competitive as well. So it's going to be a very, very interesting uh, uh, market uh, you know, as, we, as, we, uh, as we look for planes, as we hunt for planes over the next couple of years uh, to fill the capacity needs as to whether we uh, want to buy or lease. Uh, and, and again, I think that will be a function of how the market evolves over, over the next little while. But certainly from a financing perspective, our view, our long-term view on interest rates is they're going to re- remain low. And uh, that will uh, provide, uh, you know, good incentive for us to, to buy and uh, good incentive for us to negotiate uh, effective lease rates if we decide to lease. Okay, very helpful. That's super. And, and thank you very much for taking my questions. Thank you. Thank you. So we have no further questions for just at this time. Back to you, Ms. Murphy. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on our call today. Thank you very much. Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.